good afternoon, everyone, and uh, good morning if you're on the West Coast. Our topic for today's Tosca 3030 program is Tosca on Trial, which is a very Kafkaesque title if I've ever seen one. Anyway, um, next slide. That's a dial-in. We have a pretty good response uh, today for, for mid-June, uh, Tosca 3030. Next slide. I'm Herb Stryker. Um, I've spoken on uh, many of these programs. Next slide. And I'm joined today by Eric Godding. Eric has spoken on a few of these programs. Eric is one of our uh, eight environmental litigators, and we do have people that litigate uh, against the agency on occasion uh, and specialize in uh, uh, appeals of agency rulemaking. So we're very pleased to have Eric uh, today's topic. Uh, and I'm going to turn this over to Eric for a while. Next slide. All right. Well, thanks, Herb, and thanks uh, to everybody who joined us today. So I'll be talking about, uh, first, the NGO's uh, challenge in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to EPA's final task of framework rules, and in particular focusing on EPA's authority to decide which, quote-unquote, conditions of use will be addressed or perhaps not addressed uh, during the prioritization and risk evaluation processes. So as many of you know, EPA was required under the TSCA amendments to promulgate two framework rules, and those rules were issued in July of 2017. So the prioritization rule establishes a risk-based screening process, including criteria for designating chemical substances as high-priority substances for risk evaluations or low-priority substances for which risk evaluations are not warranted at this time. And the process shall include consideration of, and there's our phrase, conditions of use. Uh, the risk evaluation rule sets out a process that determines whether a chemical substance presents an unreasonable risk of injury to health or the environment without consideration of costs or other non-risk factors, including an unreasonable risk to potentially exposed or susceptible subpopulations, and again, under the conditions of use. So you will notice that I've, I've italicized a few important phrases, uh, chemical substances and, of course, conditions of use that we will uh, return to in a moment. So after the rules were finalized in July 2017, uh, no less than 14 NGOs filed six lawsuits in three different federal appeals courts across the country. Uh, those lawsuits were then consolidated in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which sits in California. Uh, Twenty industry trade associations led by ACC uh, were th then successfully intervened in the case. Uh, and so far, the NGOs have filed their opening brief and have one supporting amicus brief, or what we call a friend of the court brief, that was submitted by three public health organizations. And EPA and the interveners are currently scheduled to file their opposition briefs in uh, August. And so the NGOs' reply brief is then due in September. Uh, so we are still at the briefing stage. Uh, we don't, at this point, know exactly how EPA intends to defend the case, but based on what we've seen so far in the uh, preambles to the rules and some other statements, we have uh, somewhat of a good idea. So uh, the NGOs are challenging several aspects of the rules, uh, but the main challenge, and the one we will be discussing today, involves the phrase conditions of use. 
Uh, conditions of use is defined in the amended statute to mean the circumstances as determined by the administrator under which a chemical substance is intended, known, or reasonably foreseen to be manufactured, processed, distributed in commerce, used, or disposed of. And so again, I've highlighted some important phrasing, uh, the phrase as determined by the administrator and the phrase to be, uh, which we will discuss shortly. Uh, in their lawsuit, the NGOs present a series of legal questions that they ask the court to resolve regarding this phrase and how it should be interpreted, conditions of use. But those questions essentially boil down to this. Under the amended TSCA, does EPA have to assess all conditions of use for a chemical substance during the prioritization and risk evaluation processes, or does EPA have the authority to exclude some conditions of use and only focus on those that present the greatest potential risk to human health and the environment? So as we will see, the answer to that question could have a profound impact on the extent to which a chemical uh, is ultimately restricted, what regulatory costs will be imposed on industry, and what chemicals, or at least uses, could be subject to market deselection pressures in the future. So uh, before we delve uh, a bit further into this question, we have to first look at the standard of review that the court is going to apply when it reviews EPA's interpretation uh, and conclusions regarding its authority under the conditions of use provision. In other words, how much deference is the court going to give the agency's interpretation of that phrase as it appears in the statute? Here, the court will apply what we call the Chevron Doctrine, which is named after a landmark Supreme Court case, and it stands for the following propositions. First, what happens if the statute is clear on its face and is not ambiguous? Then the court will follow the statute to the extent that it speaks directly to the precise question at issue. In other words, that will be the end of the matter. The court does not defer to EPA's interpretation. It follows the statutory language. But second, what happens if the statute is not clear on its face and is either silent or somewhat ambiguous on the relevant issue? Then the court will defer to EPA's interpretation of the statute to the extent that the interpretation is reasonable or permissible. And to make that decision, the court will look at the plain language of the statute, the statute's, statute's overall purpose and structure, in the statute's legislative history. So we can see where the NGOs and EPA will want to fall on this spectrum. Uh, both will argue that the plain language of the statute, and in particular the definition of conditions of use, dictate a certain outcome, the one they like. But where the NGOs uh, will want to stay under that first prong of Chevron to avoid any deference to EPA, the agency will want to argue uh, that the definition can be viewed as ambiguous, and thus, thus the court should defer to its interpretation as being permissible and reasonable. So what is it about the final framework rules that prompted the NGO's uh, suit regarding EPA's interpretation of conditions of use? Well, in short, EPA concluded that TSCA allows the agency to limit the prioritization and risk evaluation to those conditions of use that pose the greatest risk to human health and the environment. In other words, EPA is not required to consider all conditions of use for a chemical substance. This contrasts with the EPA's position in the proposed rule, which was issued by the Obama administration, in which the agency said that all conditions must be considered. However, as the preamble to the final rule did note, or the final rules did note, the proposed rule recognized that EPA has some discretion to decide what conditions of use are relevant and that the requirement is susceptible to different interpretations. 
So that said, EPA sets out in the final rule certain conditions of use that it would generally exclude from consideration. So these include de minimis exposures, for example, where a, uh, a substance is used in a closed system, uh, impurities or a minor byproduct or something like that. Uh, they would also ex exclude uses based on unsubstantiated or anecdotal statements in the record, uh, intentional misuses like inhalant abuse, but EPA also includes, as exclusions, some additional categories which the NGOs focused on in their brief. Uh, the first is where another agency, for example OSHA, or another statute has already addressed the risk or that use. Uh, they also came up with the phrase legacy uses. In other words, circumstances where the chemical substance is no longer manufactured, processed, distributed, or sold. Uh, they also, EPA discusses legacy disposals that would be subject to an exclusion. In other words, where disposal uh, has already occurred, it's a historical disposal. They also talk about associated disposals, in other, in other words, disposals related to legacy uses, so again, looking backwards. Uh, and in fact, if you review the scoping and formulation documents for the first 10 chemicals, that were designated for risk evaluations, you will see that EPA has already invoked these ex exclusions. For example, with asbestos and dioxane, where the agency has excluded conditions of use because the substance is no longer sold for that particular use or the use is being regulated by another agency or under another environmental law. So what was EPA's rationale? How did it come up with this interpretation? So EPA obviously relies on the plain language of the phrase's definition, which says conditions of use are to be, quote-unquote, determined by the administrator. And that language certainly suggests that EPA has some discretion in the matter and that Congress did not intend for every condition of use to be considered. Along similar lines, TSCA's provision explicitly discussing the scoping documents, which have already been issued, I think, for the, 10, uh, the initial 10 uh, chemicals, that EPA must issue at the beginning of each risk evaluation says that the document uh, must identify the conditions of use that the agency, quote-unquote, expects to consider. And so this, again, suggests some level of discretion on EPA's part to decide what conditions of use are appropriate for uh, evaluation. So with regard to legacy uses and associated disposals and legacy, legacy disposals, EPA argues that the statute is ambiguous, or thinking back to that second prong of Chevron, on these points. So EPA specifically notes that the definition of conditions of use focuses on chemicals that are, quote-unquote, to be manufactured, used, or disposed of. So this suggests that the statute looks to the future or prospectively and does not cover uses that have ceased or things like past disposals. Likewise, throughout the statute, Congress refers to regulating chemicals that are, quote-unquote, in commerce, again suggesting kind of a present-day or forward-looking perspective. Uh, EPA, EPA also noted that uh, the general presumption in the law that absent clear indications from Congress, a statute should not be read to regulate retroactively. So, for example, it might be considered retroactive to impose liability for past disposals of a chemical substance as opposed to future ones. Uh, EPA's overall position is also partly based on policy reasons. Uh, there were concerns expressed by industry, as many of you know, that EPA would not be able to meet the tight deadlines for prioritization and risk evaluation if the agency had to consider all conditions of use, big or small.
and EPA's position is also partly based on the legislative history. Uh, specifically, EPA cited to a statement by Senator Vitter on the uh, House of the Senate, or excuse me, on the floor of the Senate, uh, that supports this uh, interpretation. So, uh, needless to say, the NGOs don't agree with the EPA's rationale. So they point to the statute's plain language and structure to argue that the statute is unambiguous. So that's the first prong of Chevron that we discussed. And that EPA must consider all conditions of use when prioritizing and evaluating a chemical. So they begin by noting that the prioritization and risk evaluation processes in the statute focus on, quote-unquote, chemical substances, and nowhere do they mention basing these decisions on a particular use. They also note that Congress refers to the, quote-unquote, the conditions of use and not a condition of use, thus directing that all uses be considered. So for the NGOs, this means that, chemical, that uh, the chemical substance and its conditions of use must be considered as a whole. The NGOs also point out that the statute actually uses the phrase specific conditions of use in other parts of the statute, thus indicating that Congress knew how to convey that notion when it meant for EPA to base a decision on a specific use, but it did not do so in the prioritization and risk evaluation sections. The NGOs also argue that even though the statute sets out in detail the various factors EPA must consider when making prioritization and risk-related decisions, it did not set out any criteria for deciding what conditions of use to include or exclude, thus implying EPA does not have that discretion in the first place. The NGOs also note that the statute actually uses the language, quote-unquote, in the administrator's discretion or similar phrasing to indicate when EPA has authority to exercise discretion, but did not use that type of wording with regard to conditions of use. Uh, the NGOs also note that EPA can rely on risk evaluations that were done prior to the TSCA amendments on work plan chemicals to promulgate risk management rules, even though those risk evaluations did not uh, consider all uses. They were only based on a subset of uses. So the NGOs argue that this exception was put in place because otherwise EPA has to do risk evaluations based on all conditions of use. In other words, if the agency had discretion to limit conditions of use in the first instance, there was no need for that exception uh, in the first place. So finally, the NGOs point out that once a risk evaluation is completed and an unreasonable risk is found, that any risk management or control measures must address a combination, quote-unquote, combination of uses. So this at least implies that Congress wanted EPA to look at all conditions of use. So just a couple more points. NGOs also made some additional arguments. Uh, first, that EPA cannot know if a chemical substance as a whole presents an unreasonable risk unless the agency considers and essentially adds up all the potential exposures, according to them, kind of the purpose of the amended TSCA. So otherwise, EPA may get, in essence, a false negative if it limits the uh, number of uses, which is not what Congress intended and is not consistent with the statute's overall purpose. A second, EPA could not know at the early prioritization stage what risks present the greatest risk before going through a risk evaluation. So the in the NGO's mind, uh, EPA is putting the cart uh, before the horse. And so finally, as to the idea of ruling out legacy uses and disposals where a product is no longer manufactured or sold, the NGOs argue that a chemical can still be used in commerce and present future threats 
In other words, uses and disposals are still ongoing even if the substance is no longer actively marketed. So, for example, asbestos insulation is still used in older buildings, and asbestos disposed of in landfills still has the potential to leach or otherwise present an exposure risk. And NGOs also note that the definition of conditions of use uh, does not distinguish between active and inactive substances, which the statute does in other provisions like Section 8. Okay, so I'll turn just it over to Herb. Just a, just a quick question, Eric. So I take it that if the Ninth Circuit concludes that the language is ambiguous, and there may be an argument for that, because remember, yeah. in the Obama administration, there was one interpretation mm -hmm. of the language. Under the Trump administration, it was another interpretation. And unless one of the administrations or other rational actors, they must have had some basis for their interpretation. So let's assume that Ninth Circuit says it's ambiguous. Right. But then it seems to me that under Chevron, the Ninth Circuit has to uphold EPA's interpretation as long as it's reasonable. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that Judge Chen's decision uh, in the uh, fluoridation case, which goes through at length mm -hmm. his conclusions, and even though it's, that's not binding, the Ninth Circuit certainly demonstrates that EPA's interpretation is reasonable. Correct. And so I think I think the NGOs have a hard, hard battle here on this one. So... Yeah, so you would agree with that? Yeah, anytime you get uh, a party can get a court to go to the second step of Chevron, uh, when the agency can get there, uh, the, uh, the, the hill gets a lot steeper for whoever, whether it's industry or the NGO, who's suing EPA. So let me sort of ask you a question. Let's assume EPA properly selects what they consider to be the most important uses mm -hmm. um, can, uh, and then issues a rule on that basis. Can that uh, that final rule be uh, challenged, uh, arguing that there were other uses that were equally important that were improperly ignored? Yeah, I mean, I think that under the preamble, uh, the EPA talks about this concept of greatest risk, and while that certainly has a lot of uh, there's certainly a lot of discretion, and they've left themselves a lot of discretion. I could see an NGO trying to argue that they missed some uses. Yeah. So that would be an, another place where you might see litigation Absolutely. around this point, even if they lose, even if the NGOs lose in the Ninth Circuit. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think this is a very interesting case. And quite frankly, I think, you know, the NGO lawsuit is not, is what we would say, a colorable argument. It's not a frivolous lawsuit. I think, uh, at least in my view, and I think Eric's as well, EPA has the better the argument is likely to prevail in the Ninth Circuit. Um, now I want to turn to a case where I think it is frivolous. Uh, and uh, next to your slide. This is, a, this is a case that I think was filed solely to influence EPA's behavior. Uh, the NRDC filed a, uh, a lawsuit in the Second Circuit uh, in January of this year, uh, and they were joined by uh, a number of uh, environmental uh, NGOs as interveners. The ACC has intervened in support of EPA, and what they did is they filed a petition for review of a, quote, final, end quote, open quote, rule, final, end quote, uh, concerning EPA's implementation of new chemicals review program. Now, we've spoke about, we've spoken about the uh, new chemicals review program in the past programs. If you may recall, next slide, if you may recall, EPA had a public meeting where it presented uh, an issue document as to how it wanted to proceed on this problem of, uh, you know, whether it had to issue a consent order, 
and then followed up by a snorer or could go directly to a snorer in order to deal with reasonably anticipated, reasonably foreseeable uses uh, when the intended use that was identifying the PMN was not of concern. And EPA had a public meeting in November of 2017. It floated a draft discussion document. It, it, it made that open for uh, public comment. Uh, and it indicated that it would like to have what's called a one-step SNUR process, where basically if you file a PMN and you indicate your intended uses, which is normally the case, and EPA doesn't have any concerns about that intended use, it would allow you to proceed to market uh, as long as EPA had, uh, first issued a significant new use rule to restrict or prohibit other uses ones that the PMN submitted did not intend. That was called the one-step SNUR rule. We had a, a TOSCA 3030 program about that. But remarkably, um, uh, the uh, NRDC filed a lawsuit against that discussion document. They call it a rule. They call it a final rule. Uh, but the reality is it is nothing more than a discussion document. And if you know anything about administrative law, you know that you can't file lawsuits, at least successful ones, against uh, draft documents, proposed rules, discussion documents, anything in that nature. Now, one thing that uh, DC argues is that EPA is actually already operating in accordance with this policy. But the hard reality is there have been no one-step snores that have issued. And so even that argument falls apart. I think what's remarkably interesting is that of the, pa of the brief opening brief, which is 59 pages, only three pages are devoted to arguing that the rule is final and reviewable, which I find remarkable because given the, the context in, in terms of what we're dealing with, that is a very hard question. Uh, and I would think that the brief, the opening brief uh, of the petitioner would focus on demonstrating to the court that there is, in fact, something here that's final and something that the court has jurisdiction to review. But they didn't do that. So why is that? Well, I think the goal here is not really to get a decision on the merits of this case, but basically to signal the EPA uh, that they should not issue any of these one-step snurs. And that, in fact, is what has occurred. There have, no, there have been no one-step snurs that have issued. You know, at one time in the early part of 2018, EPA said they had various batches that they were working on. None of those snurs have issued. So I think this, this lawsuit has been successful in the, in, the, in the sense of modifying, attempting to modify agency behavior. Next, uh, next slide. Well, what's going to happen with this case? Well, so far we have the petitioner's opening brief. EPA has not yet filed their, uh, their response. The interveners have not yet weighed in. I think that EPA certainly will file a motion to dismiss. Uh, I think the court will certainly grant that. Uh, and then uh, now the central question, though, Given what we've had here, is it a lawsuit? Even though the lawsuit will be unsuccessful, you know, will EPA then move forward with one-step snurs? And I think that's a very, very important question. And I think it's important to, to monitor that to see, you know, whether EPA uh, will stick, uh, will will be committed to the strategy that it's come up with, which I think is the only way to resolve this this backlog problem with PMNs, uh, or they will basically decide to step away from the one-step snurs. Uh, because they were faced with some litigation by environmental groups. So let's assume that they proceed with the one-step snurs. Well, then, of course, the NGOs could challenge that, uh, and they could challenge uh, any uh, consent order findings. Uh, Section 583 findings are not likely to present a reasonable risk that EPA comes up with, 
and they could challenge uh, the snore if it issues. And I would suspect they would challenge the uh, 583 finding of not likely to present a reasonable risk because challenging snore doesn't get you anywhere because the PMN submitter would already be on the market. And so there's no value to that, it seems to me, if their strategy is to, is to put a kibosh on this whole, uh, this whole idea. Next slide. So where are we going to see future litigation? Well, this slide actually lays out every possibility, but that's not where we're going to go. So there are other law cases. There's a Ninth Circuit case uh, that involves a challenge uh, to the uh, Tosca Inventory Reset, and that actually uh, focuses on uh, whether EPA you know, properly allowed CBI claims in connection with endorment um, um, uh, or inactive substances. Uh, so that uh, that case still needs to be resolved. It'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, there is, I think, a lot of uh, concern, a lot of objection from NGOs about EPA's refusal to use uh, to consider legacy uses in the asbestos uh, uh, the asbestos problem formulation document. I normally would have said that they one would have to wait until a final rule issues at the end of the Section 6A process. But, you know, given what we're seeing in the Second Circuit, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lawsuit lodged in order to get EPA to actually look at legacy uses. So uh, so that's another place where we we'll probably see litigation fairly quickly. Um, I think ultimately we will see litigation in connection with uh, EPA's failure to – the EPA's uh, decision to grant PMNs uh, without issuing a consent order. I think you'll, you'll see some litigation there. Uh, last month, we talked about the fact that uh, one of the NGOs filed very, very extensive comments in connection with an EPA proposal to modify a significant new use rule. That's basically unheard of, uh, but, you know, very, very detailed, very, very comprehensive comments challenging EPA's findings in connection with the proposal to modify the store. And I think you'll see uh, litigation on the Section 5, uh, Section 5E and Section 5A2 front. So I would look for that. Um, next slide. Okay. Well, uh, over 100, 100, 100, almost 120 people have joined this webinar. I know that most of you are not lawyers. I congratulate you for for staying with us on this. Uh, but you know, this is a time when you know the law and the courts are going to play a very, very important role. Uh, as to how the Tosca program is played out over the next several decades. And so it's kind of a critical time, you know, before all this stuff gets uh, gets turned over into uh, into plain language guidance, uh, you know, and that you there's still the courts, and I think are going to be weighing in pretty heavily as to what the new Tosca means and how the new Tosca has to be implemented, which is why we call this Tosca 3030 Tosca on Trial. So anyway, our next program is on uh, July 11th at 1 o'clock, um, and I, we promise something a little bit more, uh, uh, a, little bit, a little bit less legal, a little more science-based. Uh, I haven't decided what the topic is yet, but I, I, I promise you that. Uh, it's about time, don't you think? And, so we, and we also have a uh, OSHA 3030 program um, for Wednesday, June 20th. Uh, we have a FIFRA 3030 program still to be announced. I suggested last month that if you want to see another 3030 topic, uh, let us know. I haven't gotten any uh, any any votes, but I did suggest please not EPCA 3030. 
so in any event, I want to thank you all for uh, staying in there. I didn't see anybody, you know, disappear as, as, as you know, when we started talking about things like Chevron and things of that nature. And have a great uh, afternoon or morning if you're on the West Coast. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>